I'm ethically bound to tell the building owner that I have a solution for them. If, however, I can't help them, I'm also ethically bound to say, I'm not the right fit. We shouldn't work together, and this is why. I think the world would be a lot easier if that was the approach that everybody took. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. Today, my co-host is the inimitable Ryan Bell. Ryan, how you doing? Hey, Todd. I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well also, I, although I've still got this raspy voice thing going on, so I apologize for that, but... What have you been working on lately? You are our creative director here and get involved in all kinds of creativity. What have you been working on lately? Well, it's that wonderful time of year where we are getting le- ready to start uh, promoting our metal roofing summit. So I've been pretty swamped working on, you know, updating the website and schedule and some promo videos to help get the word out about that. Well, that's fantastic. And you're right. It's an exciting time. In fact, I almost burst out in a Christmas song there where you said it's that most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> I won't subject everyone to that. But anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to the summit. I mean, you know, we last year we had upwards of 100 people there. It's a great educational conference. I think one of the things people worry about when they go to conferences is, is this just going to be a big commercial for someone's training or someone's CDs used to be cassette tapes. I'm dating myself. Or is it really going to be something useful? And, you know, I think one of the things I often hear from folks when they leave the metal roofing summit is, uh, you guys never talked about your products. You never tried to sell me anything. And uh, we absolutely don't. We love to uh, develop relationships and friendships there. But above all, uh, we're simply there to provide Uh, Some good inspiration, some good training, um, just a lot of good networking and sharing uh, amongst the contractors uh, who come up. And uh, a big thing for all of us is to sell more residential metal roofing. And uh, we believe that rising tide raises all ships. And uh, that's really what the summit's all about. So you've done some great promotional videos that uh, hopefully our audience starts to see rolling out on some social media in different places. So that's exciting. What are our dates, April 27th through 29th or the end of April? Yeah. That's that's safe to say. I should know, but I've been well, so obsessed with uh, perfecting the videos that are going out, maybe a little pedantic about it, but yeah, I should know the dates. I, I, I believe those are correct. Well, you should be proud as a peacock of those videos you've put out. So Anyway, it's going to be at the beautiful University of Dayton Marriott, uh, which is a great facility. And uh, it's fun to expose people to Dayton and some of the neat things there, like the Air and Space Museum or Air Force Museum, I guess it is. And a number of cool developments going on in downtown Dayton right now as well. So uh, we look forward to having folks as our guests. Check that out at metalroofingsummit.com metalroofingsummit.com. Love to see you join us. Um, So one of the things I want to share with everybody before we introduce our guest today, we are once again doing our challenge words. So each of us has been given a word to work into the conversation at some point. And so our audience can be listening to see if they pick up on 
I wonder if that was a challenge word right there. And of course, at the end of the show, we will recap our success or lack thereof. Um, so let's get rolling. Uh, today's guest is Rolf Snowbeck. Uh, based in the Chicago area, Rolf has nearly 45 years of roofing industry experience. He and our, I are right there in competition with each other. He has worked with Tecta America Commercial Roofing for the last 27 years, currently serving as National Strategic Account Manager. Rolf, interestingly, has worked in 43 states as well as in Canada and the Pacific Basin. Uh, since 1994, he's been a registered roof consultant with IIBEC, which is the former RCI, and he is licensed as a professional roofing contractor in the state of Illinois. Widely respected for his knowledge and expertise and known as Rolf the Roofing Guy, Rolf's goal is to help property owners make better roofing decisions. Rolf, thank you so much for joining us today on Construction Disruption. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we're looking forward to a great conversation, especially, you know, anyone who uh, has a lot of experience, has a lot of stories from our industry, of course, but you know, I think the big thing that drives us all forward is how do we make the industry better? So can you share with us a little bit about your own story and, you know, how you came to spend, uh, you know, at least so far, uh, your entire career in the roofing industry? Well, if, if you want to hear stories, you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> so, so how did I get into the roofing industry? It was not by plan. It was purely by accident. Unless if somebody is the son or daughter of somebody in the industry, it's not a, a place that people naturally gravitate to. That's true. But back in high school, uh, this was back when they had shop classes. I took all the standard shop classes, autos, uh, woods, electronics, typesetting. Now, there's, a, there's a, a skill that you don't necessarily need to have anymore, and drafting. And six weeks before I graduated from high school, my high school drafting teacher, who moonlit as a house painter, Painted a house on a weekend for a guy that was a, a roof consultant engineering company. And he came in on Monday, he goes, hey, I painted this guy's house and he needs a draftsman, part-time draftsman to work for him and full-time over the summer. Hey, Rolf, you got to go apply for a job. So since I was very good at drawing, I applied for the job and I got it. And it was purely a means to pay for college. So I worked there full-time in the summer part-time during the school year, paid for college. Great thing was I had zero debt when I got out. But what I tell people, when you get into the roofing industry, it's like the old Eagles song, the Hotel California. Right. You check out, but you never leave. Can't leave. Yep. So I've, I've changed jobs a couple of times, but I'm stuck. Yeah, it's really interesting. A, a couple episodes we ago, we interviewed Letitia Hankey of ARS Roofing and Gutter out in California. Very similar story. She was in college. She was actually going to be a professional musician. Really? Took a part-time summer job as a, in a roofing office. Ended up buying the company like five years later. So, so you're right. It, it's fascinating. And it, the thing I think that drives a lot of us is this desire to help people because the roof is such a critical part of the building envelope. And uh, so that's cool stuff. So for our audience members who may not be real familiar with Tecta America, can you please tell us a little bit about the scope and breadth of the company and maybe tell us what your responsibilities are there today? 
So um, I tell people that Tech is the national roofing company with the local touch. You know, what does that mean? We've got roughly 95 offices, and we do work in each of those local markets for roofing that is indigenous to the given area. So you might be in uh, the historic areas in the Northeast, and you're going to see a lot of slate work. You're going to get down to Florida, and you're going to have Spanish tile. You get to Phoenix, Arizona, and half the market is sprayed-in-place foam. Okay, mm-hmm. So there's common products that may be installed across the country, TPO, PVC, that type of thing, EPDM. But we really dial into whatever the local market does. So what do I do specifically is that I'm in national accounts. So I work with clients that may have regional or national portfolios of buildings. And and generally speaking, who do I help? I'm going to work for an account. Uh, They may be frustrated because, you know, they're not, it's not just one roof they're concerned about. They've got dozens or hundreds of roofs. And they're frustrated because they have roofs that haven't lasted as long as, as they thought they should have. The dirty little secret in the industry is that virtually every roof comes with a 20-year warranty, but the average statistical roof life is less than 17 years. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Part of that is because roofs aren't to take care of. So you've got another set of people that are, that are concerned they know they got to do a preventive maintenance program, but they have no idea how to apply that to a roof. And then I work with a lot of people that are worry, worried about safety. And traditionally, when it comes to roofing, building owners think about, and OSHA used to think about, hey, the new roof's being put on the building. During the execution of the work, the contractor makes needs to make sure that their employees, as well as, as the uh, building owner's employees, are being kept safe. When the, con- when the roof is done, all the safety equipment co- goes down, contractor goes away. In 2016, uh, OSHA came out with the uh, walking, working surfaces protocol. And it really puts the onus on building owners. Hey, you've got a, a roof on the building and there's rooftop units up there that need to be uh, maintained. How does the building owner keep their employees safe? So I do quite a bit of work with owners understanding that uh, protocol and how to be in compliance. Very interesting. Well, I I know too, you have done a lot of informative videos about different aspects of roofing. You've got a couple of good ones out there that help to explain warranties. So it appears to be you take, you know, what we call a consultative approach to selling uh, as you work with your clients. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, I mean, you're, you're at the top of the industry. What do you see as the role and responsibility of a professional roofing contractor? Thanks for asking. That's a, that's a great question. I've had the good fortune of working, as, as I say, there's three sides to the fence in the, in the roofing industry. There's the, the design side, architects, engineers, consultants. I worked on that side of the fence for 17 years. There's the contracting side. Uh, I've been working on that for 27 years. And then there's the manufacturing or supplying side. But they all contribute to the solution. The, I think the reason I take the approach that I do is that through IBEC that you mentioned before, I'm a registered roof consultant. So I spent the first part of my career finding solutions that made sense on paper. This last 27 years, I've spent uh, time working to find out as a licensed contractor, what's the practical solution? Because... I think you need to marry those together. When designers sit in a vacuum and contractors sit in a vacuum, 
they both have knowledge, but uh, where they overlap and they can combine that knowledge, it's a better result for building owners. So that's part of the reason I take the approach that I do, uh, not just purely, hey, what's the cheapest way to put a roof on a building? But what, what's the most practical solution to help solve their, uh, a building owner's problems? And that, that's the reason when I sit down with them, I'll ask them questions and I'll tell them that I'm going to, before we propose anything, we're going to sit down and have a conversation and find out if we're a fit or not a fit. And if we're not a fit, who can I recommend that they should be talking to instead of us? If we are a fit, you know, try to figure out what is it they need and find the most appropriate solution. That's where I come up with a consultative approach. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah. So I don't know if that, uh, that helps you a little bit. And the other thing is, you know, we've gotten very technology oriented. It used to be, you had to go out and look at every building cause there was nothing, there was no other ways to see it. But in today's world, there's drones, uh, there's satellite imagery. We see people using this all the time, but at the end of the day, I think you still need to set up a ladder, climb across the roof, uh, be a little bit ambulatory, take a look at the thing, you know, from six feet from everywhere and come up with the right solution. Yep. I, I, I agree. There's a lot to be said for the technology. It's very helpful, but sometimes hands-on is really more helpful and important as well. So, you know, it's kind of interesting as I think back and, and I've always been in the residential end of things, but as I think back to my start in the industry, it, it seemed like most roofing residential roofs were sold with a contractor coming out, pulling out his tape measures, wheel and getting some measurements and oftentimes writing a number down on a business card and handing it to the homeowner and say, hey, call me if you want to do this. <laughs> do you think that the bar is being raised in terms of selling methods in the roofing industry? I mean, I know, you know, the dollars are a lot higher than they were back then too. Or do you think the bar is, is still kind of at that level I just mentioned? I'd like to think that the, the bar is being raised, but in general, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say on any given day, people are tripping over the bar. And that sounds a little harsh, I know. But, you know, a little bit of history. You know, 40 years or so ago, warranties entered the market. And they've become a litmus test, not so much in the residential end of the world, but on the commercial industrial side where I'm at, that becomes a litmus test. People are, they ask the question, you know, how long is your warranty? Okay, um, and uh, what's your price? Okay, and now I will say in the last two years, because of supply chain shortages, it's been the first time since I've been on the construction side where value and service became important. Most building owners, since I've been over on the construction side, it's all about price and the lowest price. So I got to tell you, when I left the design side, my consulting background, I was shocked because traditionally when you're a professional architect or engineer, that type of thing, there's a process the building go owners go through to select who they're going to work with as a design professional. And generally they say, you know, they say we have an issue, but we need to do a needs analysis. You know, what is it we want to try to accomplish? At that point, they put together a, a request for qualifications and they, they advertise that, usually send it out to design professionals to uh, respond to. They get the submissions back. They review all those submissions. They make a short list. You know, they might get 10 submissions back, but they'll sit down and, and review those and, and select the three most qualified design professionals. Then they interview them, confirm what they thought, and force rank them. This is definitely most qualified second, third, or fourth. They make a selection, 
and then negotiate a fee. If they can't negotiate a fair and equitable fee, they kick out number one and go to number two. But the selection is based upon who's most qualified. So when I, when I left the design side of the world and came to the contracting side, and the dollars are much higher, I assume that's how building owners bought roofs. I couldn't have been more wrong. And it took me about two weeks to figure it out. It becomes a couple of things. They need a roof. Back 27 years ago, they looked through the phone book. Now they just Google contract, roofing contractor. Whoever shows up on page one, they call them and say, give us a price. Does the roof come with a warranty? And they award it to somebody. So the whole process of finding out who's most qualified doesn't exist. But here the last two years, because of the supply chain shortage has been the first time since I've been on the side of the fence where your ability to serve was actually the number one criteria. So it's kind of refreshing. I don't know if it's going to stay that way, but. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't, hadn't even thought about that. I think that's fascinating, but you're absolutely right. You know, we even see it on the residential side, a typical question from a homeowner anymore is, you know, what's your lead time going to be? And we also see them asking about the qualifications of their workers um, because yeah. they've heard about the skilled trade shortage and problems. So I think it's right. fascinating you brought that up. Well, thank you. The other thing that I would mention is, is that if you're talking about professional, a professional contractor and professional sales, something I think is real important is that there's some people that are so desperate for the next, next, next piece of work, they will force a sale on somebody. And I subscribe to the philosophy of what I call ethical sales. If we can help, I'm ethically bound to tell the building owner that I have a solution for them. If, however, I can't help them, I'm also ethically bound to say, I'm not the right fit. We shouldn't work together, and this is why. I think the world would be a lot easier if that was the approach that everybody took. But No, I, I loved it. It's not the old. <laughs> One of the things that, that I know I will often teach folks is... And it takes what you just said a little bit of a step further, but I'll teach salespeople to have a code of ethics written out that they even present to the customer and say, hey, if I'm blessed with your business, here's the way I will behave. Here's what you can expect from me. Um, and then sign up. That's a great idea. Kind of curious. This is a little bit off script for us, but what are some things that come to mind for you as far as easy ways for a professional contractor to really outshine their competitors? Well, I'll go back to what I mentioned before is to sit down first of all. And when I get in front of a prospect, they, they reached out to me for whatever reason, and I'm going to be very forthright with them and say, I don't know if we're a fit. We're going to be together for the next hour or two hours, whatever the case is going to be. I'm going to ask you some some questions. Some of them may be difficult to answer, but they'll help me determine whether or not we can provide a solution. For you. Are you okay asking if, with me asking those questions? Invariably, people say yes. And I'll say conversely, we're probably going to have, you're probably going to ask some questions of me. Are you going to be comfortable asking, asking those? Whatever you have, that's fine. The next step is, hey, at the end of this hour, I may reach the conclusion that I'm not a fit, and I'm going to tell you that. If you don't think I'm a fit, are you comfortable telling me that as well? And you can actually see people relax because generally speaking, when you're in a sales situation, 
the prospect knows you're a salesman and they're afraid of you because the perception is, is that salesman always wants to close the sale and they're, they don't want to, they're afraid to say too much, you know, so they keep things close to the vest. If that, if that's the way we're going to do, I'm, I understand why they're concerned, but, uh, we have to get beyond that. And they're usually relieved when they find out that it's okay for them to tell me no. Okay. I don't want to be a stalker. I don't want to call them, keep calling them if they don't want to work with us or if they don't think we're a fit, please tell me, I'll leave you alone. Yeah. So I think that goes back to the ethical sales end again. So I don't know if that answers your question. I have a little side question. Do you have rebuttals prepared then if somebody tells you no? Um, do you ask them why you, they think they're not, you might not be a good fit? Like, do you have a, a sales process for dealing with that? Or is it like, okay, I'll get out of your hair? Uh, well, that would be part of it. We're going to have a free flowing conversation. We're going to be honest with each other. Okay. And I'm going to ask them why they thought that. And if, if they're correct, perhaps we don't do what they're really looking for. That's okay. That's okay. So, um, I, I say it's, there's no mutual mystification. Everybody has to understand what's going through the mind of the other person. And it's, I tell people it's okay for them to tell me, no, if we're not a fit, that's fine. It's okay. It's okay. You know, one of the things I often tell salespeople is that, you know, I, I you'll see this moment in a salesperson's career a lot of times where it suddenly the light bulb goes on that they are selling for the benefit of the customer, not for the benefit of themselves. Mm -hmm. Everything changes in their career going forward as soon as that light bulb goes on. So I could tell that that's kind of what you subscribe to as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. I would agree. That, I like the way you said that. That's absolutely true. So switching gears a tiny bit over the, the length of your career in this industry, um, are there couple, three things that come to mind to you could be products, could be technology that have really been significant game changers in the roofing industry? Well, there, there's been interesting question. There's been a couple of significant changes. Uh, when I started back in 1978, you really had a choice between was it going to be an asphalt roof or a built-up roof or a, uh, an asphalt built-up roof or a coal tar pitch built-up. They were both black. They were both sticky, but they're chemically different. Those were your choices in the commercial world. And in the early 80s, uh, single-ply technologies, as we know them today, came out of the market. Literally hundreds of companies entered the market. Hundreds exited the market, just trying out new stuff. Some, some worked, most didn't. But we went from essentially two technologies to today, you have hundreds of choices. So it's more complicated than ever. So in the 1980s, a bunch of technologies came on, like I mentioned, but two really stuck, which was modified bitumen membranes, APP and SBS modifieds. In the 90s, EPDM really took off. And then since the turn of the country, white thermoplastic, whether it be uh, PVC or TPO, have really become predominant. That's more code-driven than anything else. Uh, so, but today there's so many iterations that, you really got to keep your head on a swivel because there's always something new. So as opposed to two choices, 45 years ago, you've got uh, hundreds of choices now. 
and all kinds of generic families. So it's a very complicated world. The, the other, I guess, game changer that I would think about would be product failures. And I can think of a couple of significant ones. One was a product that came out, it had to be in the early 80s, was phenolic insulation. I don't know if, if everybody's familiar with that, but it was a higher R-factor foam insulation, higher R-factor than the polyiso that everybody is familiar with today. It only had one bad side effect in that if you got it wet, it became highly corrosive and it caused uh, roof decks to rust through and collapse and bad stuff. A huge financial loss for the, for the manufacturers because they had to come in and, and pay to replace roofs that were otherwise serviceable, but they had to get rid of them before there was a catastrophic failure. The other thing was um, one of the products from the early 80s was unreinforced PVC with a liquid plasticizers. Without reinforcement, the product would get embrittled. So PVC by natural, its natural state is a brittle, hard, brittle material. Think of the PVC pipe that you get at Home Depot. It's okay. When you get it in a roof membrane, it's very flexible. They put liquid plasticizers in there to make it flexible. When it first was introduced to the market, there was no reinforcement and the plasticizers were not stable. They would, they would exit the sheet so that roof membrane that was nice and pliable when it was installed would get rock solid and you walk on it, it shattered. There'd be a big temperature change, it would shatter. The manufacturers, God bless them, they replaced those roofs. Huge financial loss. So how has that been a game changer? In my opinion, I think products are better now than they ever have been because there was a lesson learned from the manufacturers. They paid out a lot of claims. They'd rather not do that. Absolutely. I think roof performance is better today than it was at any time in history. That to me is a game changer. Yeah, good stuff. So as you look at the roofing industry today, what are some of the major challenges you see facing the industry today and, you know, maybe over the next few years? Okay. Actually, you know, obviously the, the biggest challenge of the last two years has been the supply chain sure. issue. You know, I handle probably 200 projects a year and in years past, you know, there's always a problem job every, every year. Last year, if I handled 200 jobs, there were 200 problem jobs problem. because there was something you couldn't get. So if you saw me two years ago, I had, I had brown hair and now it's gray. <laughs> so that's the biggest challenge. That's supposed to be getting better. Uh, the amazing thing is, is that in 2020, we had COVID in all construction, all buying, everything stopped for four months. And then in around August of that year, everybody found out the world wasn't going to end. And we were directed to get all of the work done that had been, that was scheduled for that capital year. So I, I talk about 2020 as being the year that we did 12 months worth of work in eight months. And it's like, we were glad when that was behind us, but that was actually a day at the beach compared to the last two years with the supply chain issues. As far as moving forward, the biggest challenge I see is labor. We just simply can't. We could hire hundreds of people if they were available, but there's just not enough skilled laborers. And I'll, I'll lay that at the hands of, I talked about how I got into the industry, taking shop classes 45 years ago. Shop classes, by and large, are not being provided in high schools. And I, my thinking is it's not that young kids don't want to do this work. They're not being exposed to using their hands. And I bet you half the population, if they were 
if they got to pick up a hammer and saw in school and actually build something, they may say, hey, this is pretty cool. I, wa- I want to employ these skills a- as a building trade. That's good stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So I know that uh, NRCA has started their pro certification project, which isn't necessarily a top of the funnel to bring people in, but it's really geared toward recognizing the skill levels that people do reach with training. Mm-hmm. Curious what you think about it. Have you been exposed to that program at all, um, or do you have any thoughts on it? I think I think the program's great. I know some uh, younger guys have been through it. I know some of the trainers. I think it's it's a wonderful thing. You know, traditionally in construction, the training program was, hey, tell the apprentice to go do this, and after he screws it up, tell him he did it wrong. Okay, <laughs> so I think it's a great thing that people that have got thirty and forty years of training that know the right procedures are working in a uh, uh, almost classroom setting that NRCA has put together the right way to coach them, but to get get the younger people up to speed more quickly. And I think it, it does a couple of things. It provides them getting to uh, being journeymen more quickly. It reduces problems in the roof. Building owners thinking, oh, the contractor did shoddy work. If the person doesn't know how to execute, yeah, they're probably right. It helps improve the performance of the roofs because they're being built right at the same time, being built right at the the first experience. And it helps eliminate contractors having a bad reputation because work being done right at the get-go. So sorry to ramble, but I think it's a great program. Good. No, I'm glad to hear that. I know we're excited about and have been involved a little bit in the metal side development as well. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we're excited about it. You kind of alluded to this earlier. Do you see property owners and managers sometimes in bigger properties being more proactive or hands-on in terms of roof management these days? And If so, do you think that's a good thing? Yes, that is a wonderful thing, but it rarely happens. So we talk about it with virtually every client, and it usually falls on deaf ears. And, and here's the reason. This is where the whole warranty thing uh, you've heard me talk about it online, is a hindrance to progress. And as I mentioned, the typical commercial roof comes with a 20-year warranty that lasts less than 17 years. Why is that? Part of it might be it might be the wrong roof for the building. So I always make analogies to the auto industry. If you're a drywall contractor, what's the appropriate vehicle for you to use? An F-150 or a Toyota Corolla to haul sheetrock? Okay. They both got four wheels. I'm here to tell you after a year, one's going to be running pretty good and the other one's going to be toast. So they're both wonderful vehicles, but they're not both appropriate for the same thing. And you can apply that same principle to roof and use different roofs for different applications. The other thing is when you buy a new car, it comes with a warranty and it says you got to change your oil twice a year. There are certain specific things you do. And when a light bulb, when a headlight burns out, that's not covered by the warranty. You need to fix that. When the wipers wear out, you need to replace it. That's part of the the upkeep and restoration of the car. The warranty on your on your roof is no different. You have to inspect the roof twice a year. You need to keep the drains clear. The sealant and caulking are considered a maintenance item. As they start to crack, you must renew those. Most building owners don't, and that's the reason the roofs fail before they, the warranty expires. So if you bought a new car with a 50,000-mile warranty and it didn't last 50,000 miles, you'd be furious. You'd be furious. They last far longer than that because, by and large, people maintain them. Roofs could last far longer than the warranty. 
if they maintain them. So there's some customers that we work with that get it. I'm going to say the lion's share still don't understand the concept, but we're screaming from the rooftops. I love your, love your explanation there though. That's, uh, that's absolutely spot on and, uh, good stuff. So I think I saw someplace where you referred to yourself as the practical environmentalist. Mm -hmm. Do I have that correct? You have that correct. Okay. So what does that mean to you when it comes to roofing? Help, help me understand that. Okay. Well, you know, what's the definition of sustainability? It's, it's to maintain, uh, according to Webster's, uh, at a certain rate or level. Okay. I've got a lot of friends in the architectural world and in the building owner world that I think look at it a little bit different. Their idea of sustainability is let's install everything brand new, the highest efficiency and, you know, think of all the energy you will save down the road. Okay, that's fine. But from a purely environmental or sustainability perspective, you know, if we took care of what we own, it doesn't have to wind up in the landfill. Okay, so you can put on a high efficiency roof, but the payback on heating costs over the term of that thing probably won't, won't pay for uh, the cost of the work. So it's a matter of being practical. However, if we take care of that roof, it might last for years or decades longer and not needlessly go to the landfill. So I, you know, I made the analogy already about automobiles. I use, when it comes to this, the analogy of lighting, okay? My bride and I, we bought a new house 14 years ago. And as we've kind of morphed in our needs, I've tried to change some of the lighting. The lighting that was installed here 14 years ago is no longer available because there's more higher efficiency lighting. So to have everything match, the stuff that was put on 14 years ago, I got to tear it out and throw it to the landfill so I get everything matching. Is that practical? Okay. So that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, from a purely, if we take care of stuff, it, you know, like I said, uh, keep it uh, at a certain rate or level, maintain it over the long term. We're not sending stuff to the landfill. If you do need to re-roof, if you do need to go that way, that's fine. Use the high efficiency stuff. But if possible, what you're tearing off, recycle it. There's membranes out there that can be recycled. There's insulation that can be recycled. Don't put it in the landfill. And then consider solutions for new materials that come for recycled goods. So that helps as well. And so there are membranes on the market now that have been on the market for 30 years or more. Essentially, the same products that came out in the 1980s, they work. They might cost incrementally more than what I call commodity products, but if they're going to last 30 or 40 years, doesn't that make sense? So that's the reason I call myself the practical environmentalist. Everything, you don't need to start over. You don't need to throw everything away. Use something good. Take care of it. It'll last for decades. Good stuff. Well, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the labor shortage and, and shortage of skilled labor. And, you know, you talked about how a lot of it's just, you know, young folks aren't exposed to what we do in some of these trades. Uh -huh. What advice would you have, though, for a younger person who has identified they'd like to get involved in roofing? Where do you think they might find good career opportunities? So I would say get involved in the industry. Come on in. The water's great. Okay. Uh, we keep the pool warm. But, you know, the NRCA, IBEC, 
uh, CSI, Construction Specifications Institute, all have great educational seminars. We talked about pro certification from NRCA. Learn. There's a lot of good companies and there's resources besides just your employer where you can get information from and learn. And, you know, we met through uh, uh, LinkedIn and stuff. There's other information out there. Uh, educate yourself. Good stuff. Well, Rolf, thanks so much. And this has been great. We really are close to wrapping up uh, what we call the business end of things. Is there anything we haven't covered today that you'd like to share with our audience? Interesting. Can I do some shameless promotion? Absolutely. We'd love that. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is not for uh, uh, TACTA, but I talked a little bit about how I got into the industry and that I was fortunate 45 years ago to be able to work part of the year and pay for college. That's just not the case. The cost of college has gotten outrageously expensive. So uh, it's higher, harder than ever to get a, a degree in higher education for people that are going that direction. So here in Northern Illinois, we have in our organization, we call it the Chicago Area Sh Chapter Building Envelope Foundation, and it's set up specifically to help students that are going to college that are looking at a career in the building envelope arena. So. If you know somebody from Northern Illinois that's in college and, and is looking at a career in this area, go to cac-bef.org and uh, have them fill out an application. Uh, we're here to help. It's hard for them to get through college, and this is a, a means to help them help them with that. If you've been successful and you want to help with the scholarship fund, we'd love to talk to you as well. Awesome. And you said that's cac-bef.org? Yes, sir. So could folks who uh, wanted to get involved in helping support that, they could go to the website as well and make connections there? Yes. Yes. And our contact information is uh, the all of the trustees are listed there. So you can reach out to any of us and uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And any application form. So we help students studying. We help organizations that are doing research uh, as well with uh, scholarships. Well, thank you for doing that. I was not aware of that. I hadn't run across that with you yet. So uh, that's fantastic. Um, thank you. Uh -huh. Well, before we close out, I have to ask if you're willing to participate in something we call our rapid fire questions. So Rolf, these are seven questions. Some are a little serious. Some are a little silly. All you got to do is give a quick answer to each one. And our audience needs to understand if Rolf agrees to this, he has no clue what we're going to ask him. So, are you up to the challenge of rapid fire? Awesome. Bring it out. Come on. What's the worst that you happen? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We will alternate asking. You want to ask the first one, Ryan? Sure. I'd be glad to. Question number one. If you could magically and instantly learn one new skill, what would it be? I thought these were going to be easy. Can I go back <laughs> One new skill. Uh, you know what? And this is purely personal. I'd love to know how to ski. Awesome. Snow ski? Water ski? Snow ski. Yeah. That would be a cool Last time I tried, I almost died. But I, I think that'd be, that'd be <laughs> one thing. Oh, my. Okay. Mm -hmm. Second question. What is your favorite meal? Meatloaf. Awesome. That's what I had for lunch. Good deal. Notice the food questions I had no issue with. So <laughs> <laughs> most people don't. Yeah. Uh, first car you ever owned? 
Uh, there's a reason I mentioned the Toyota Corolla. That was your first car. Awesome. First car. I had to bite my tongue. I really wanted to make a joke about a Toyota Corolla outlasting a Ford F-150. <laughs> they may without the She-Rock being tied down. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, speaking of being remembered for, um, next question. What ultimately would you like to be remembered for? Um, I hope people remember that I'm, uh, I believe that I'm fundamentally honest. Maybe do a fault. That's my mom and dad told me not to lie and I just can't. So can't beat that. Good stuff. No. What would the six-year-old Rolf have said he wanted to be when he grew up? You know, that's an interesting, I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but I can tell you when, when we moved into our new home, I found my grade, my report cards from grade school back when they were handwritten and I was, Every, all of my teachers, uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, all wrote that uh, Rolf uh, daydreams. He just looks outside all day. So there's a reason I do what I do. <laughs> if I had to sit by a desk every day, I'd go nuts. But I get to climb up a ladder and get outside. So uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had to be free to roll. You were a dreamer. Good stuff. <laughs> okay. Next one's mine, isn't it? How, have you ever had a nickname? And if so, what was that nickname? I'm going to go with no. Yeah, it's a good answer. No nickname. Good answer. How many times have you changed your residence in your adult life? Four. That's not very many. That's about where I am, too. So uh, technically three, because I moved back into one, but there was... Well, that's a, there's got to be a story there. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> we don't need to go there, but... Uh... <laughs> Well, Rolf, this has been a real pleasure. We've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So for folks who may want to get in touch with you, of course, I know you're on LinkedIn, but what are some easy ways for them to get in touch with you? Uh, easiest way to reach me is my phone is always near me, uh, 630-514-1867. It's probably the easiest way. They can email me, but just give me a call. I always, I always return my calls. I love that personal touch. That's good stuff. And that that shows what you're all about. So that's cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rolf. This has been a pleasure and I'd like to, oh, I, I do have one thing I need to remember and then tell us all about. Um, our challenge words. We were all successful at using our challenge words. In fact, right as I jumped the gun and got them in before I even talked about us having challenge words. Ryan, your challenge word was pedantic. And I, I did wonder when I said it, I'm like, oh, we haven't even talked. You haven't even mentioned them yet. I don't know if this counts. Yeah, I just, I just went with it. So then right after that, I used peacock. And Rolf, your word was? Ambulate. Yes, and you, you were worked it in well. <laughs> well, so that was a little bit of fun. Thanks for uh, throwing that in there. I appreciate it. Well, we try to have fun here. Try our best. So anyway. Well, I want to thank our audience for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with Rolf Snowbeck, the roofing guy, um, and he is with Tecta America. Please uh, watch for and join us for future episodes of our podcast. We're always blessed with fantastic guests. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Until the next time we're together, change the world for someone, make them smile, encourage them. Uh, simple yet powerful things we can all do to change the world.
God bless. Take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption.